Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 75 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, my guest is Dr. John Papadopoulos, a professor of classics and archaeology at UCLA. His research and teaching interests include the Aegean, as well as the Eastern and Central Mediterranean, from the late Bronze and early Iron Ages into the Classical and later periods, the archaeology of colonization, the archaeology of death, the topography and architecture of Athens, and the integration of literary evidence with the material and the visual record in the study of the past. He has excavated or conducted fieldwork widely in Greece, Albania, Italy, and Australia, and is the author or editor of 13 books, over 100 articles, and about 50 book reviews. In this episode, we discussed his experience studying classical archaeology as a Greek in Australia, why there isn't more encouragement to learn the modern languages of the regions of study, and how bringing ancient buildings back to life is essential for future studies. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Great. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, this evening for you, obviously, being in Athens. So I hope to start you off with what I hope will be a very softball question, which is just what age or when did you discover your intense passion or love for studying the ancient world? I, I suppose if I think back, it's it's probably um, back in high school. I was inspired by a high school ancient history teacher. Uh, he, his, he, he, his name was Humphrey Charles. He was a very inspiring person. I was, I was fortunate to take history with him. I was actually a really good student in high school in things like mathematics and STEM fields um, because they were so logical. They made wonderful sense. And writing an ancient history essay was actually much more challenging than doing mathematics or physics because it was interpretive. And I just found that so much more fun. So when I finally got into university, um, that's that's the sort of field I pursued. And 
you know, I was fortunate enough to do six years of Latin at high school. Um, and then and then took Greek when I went to university. So it's interesting. If you were very good at the STEM fields, did you feel pressure when you got to undergrad to maybe continue and into one of those fields because it might equal well, or so the thinking goes now, it might turn into something more profitable. I never thought I would get a job in the field, um, in a sort of broader classics archaeology related field. It was just one of those serendipitous things that I just kept going because I had so much fun doing these subjects at university. And I knew that at at some time when the sort of bubble burst, I would go back and do something, you know, much more inane in order to get myself a job, but that never never eventuated. So there was there was no pressure, and, and I was very fortunate that you know my parents never pressured me into being a doctor or a lawyer or a lawyer or anything else like that. From your last name, which is Greek, was there almost like a source of pride that they that you, that your parents felt when they discovered, oh, our son actually wants to study ancient Greece. He wants to study the classical world. That's you know I, I suppose you would have to ask them, but they're long dead. Um, I, I, I don't think so, actually. I, I think they were just, I think they were happy and in a sense relieved, um, that my brother and I both went to universe. I, I don't think they were happy or upset or anything of the sort with the sorts of things that I took. Both of my parents grew up in World War II and post-World War II Greece, and so they, they went through many hardships and they themselves never had an education. So the fact that their, that their two children did have an education made them really happy. And I think that um, that was really what it was all about. Well, that's re that's that's wonderful to, to hear. I mean, to go from parents who might have struggled in, in post-World War II Greece to, to having two kids go to university and one become a professor of classics. I mean, they must be, they must have just been so, so pleased with this. I am curious, though. Now, I know dealing with stereotypes or other just assumptions for, is, is, is really common. And so did you, when you were going through any of the stages of education or career, did you encounter people who figured, ah, yes, this person studies classics, he studies ancient Greece because he's Greek, um, because there's a lot of sort of that reverse sentiment of when I would tell people that I study classics. They go, oh, well, that's so interesting. But why aren't you studying ancient China? Because obviously you're Chinese. So why would you go study Greece? So was there any sort of reverse stereotyping where, oh, yes, it's assumed that you shouldn't or couldn't have gone into something because it makes so much sense that you're Greek. So you study Greece. Actually, the opposite, in a, in a sense, it turned out that I was, for the time, when I was an undergraduate in the mid-70s, uh, and I grew up in Australia, of course, um, as you can tell from my accent, I was actually the first guy with a Greek background that did ancient Greek at the University of Sydney. So it was, it was in fact... Um, it was, if, if anything, it was the opposite. The University of Sydney also, at the time, had a very distinguished program in modern Greek. The, 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 the professor of Greek, 
interviewed the handful of students that took Greek one at the university. One of the first things he said to me was, are you sure you want to do ancient Greek and not modern Greek? I said, yes, I speak modern Greek. In fact, I couldn't speak English until I went to school. So Greek was, in many ways, modern Greek was my mother tongue. So in fact, was in a sense the opposite. It did put me in good stead when I was an archaeologist uh, in Greece. Greek colleagues learned that I was, you know, of, of a mo- you know, from a modern Greek. Uh, family background. Now that really is sort of unexpected and and fun. I mean, and it's a bit surprising to me considering I I from what I know, I think Australia has the s- second biggest diasporic Greek community in the world after the United States. Could that be right? Yeah, I think I think it's um I think Melbourne is often referred to as the third largest Greek city after Athens and Thessaloniki. Uh, and there's an old adage I've kind of found to be true that you're not really uh, a genuine Greek unless you have some relative, no matter how distant, in Australia. I am learning so much today. So have you noticed a, a marketed change since when you were coming up and, and going through it all and now between uh, how how many people of Greek origin in Australia are going into the classics? If you were the only one to, I mean... It seems like there are more and more people who would go into classics now, Greek origin, but um, obviously we don't have any, I don't have any figures. I don't have uh, any figures, but being um, a junior starting professor at the University of Sydney and then being at UCLA, I, I can certainly tell you that the vast majority of Greek students, whether they're Greek Americans or Greek students from Greece studying in the U.S., the majority that I've come across are doing engineering, computing, computer science. You know, um, they're, they're really they're really in much more in many of the fields that ultimately lead to, you know, well-paying positions. So the, the number of students that I've had in classics who were, you know, Greek Americans or Greek Australians was in fact very limited. It is so interesting. I I love learning about the different trends and where people seem to, having lived and studied in Greece myself, I did definitely see. Where in Greece did you study? In Athens at the National University there. So it 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 it, it is interesting because now that I'm thinking back, um, yeah, a great deal of, of my classmates um, got their bachelors in some sort of STEM field or something that they believe will make them tons of money. And and I can only assume that from their experience, this must be growing up in a uh, post-crisis, post-2008 Greece, where the the shocks of the economic crisis really weigh heavily on the mind. So um, I I wonder how long that will keep impacting the the younger generations before more decide, okay, maybe, maybe I can go back and do archaeology or, or something to do with with classics um but but going back to you i'm i'm curious i i guess i want to i want to know like what was the deciding factor in choosing to pursue archaeology rather than studying and becoming a philologist first of all the ancient historians at the university of sydney were among some of the most boring teachers i ever had in my life there was a whole bunch of them who were interested in roman military history you know which really 
didn't do it for me. What can I say? The language was always fun. Uh, the philology was always fun. So, but in many ways, once you master a certain level of Greek, it's 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 a it's a question of learning the Greek. Uh, and once you once you've mastered it, then it's 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 like reading all the great things that are open that open up to, for you. It was really the people of Greek antiquity that fascinated me. Just like when I was in Australia, you know, I began not on ancient Greek sites, but on Australian Aboriginal sites. I fell in love with that. I, I was happy to do that for the rest of my life. I mean, 99% of humans who have passed on this earth never wrote a language. And so it wasn't the nuances or the niceties of the philology that really did it for me. It was the people of antiquity that did it for me. It was them that I wanted to study. It was them that I wanted to explore. I can understand that, and I think that's wonderful because it is true. Uh, so, so many, so, so, I mean, so many uh, cultural histories are definitely passed down through like like oral tradition, basically. So, were you influenced at all by things like? Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones was actually quite late. <laughs> I was already an archaeologist when the Indi you know, like um, you know, it's a sad thing when when <laughs> you know you're an old an old fart like me. It, it was it was hilarious because um uh, I told many of the student I I told all the student volunteers who were working with me in the in the Agora this season that you know when when the latest Indiana Jones film came out. I said, it's really about the Antikythera mechanism. So if you want to do yourselves a favor, here's some things that you have to read about the Antikythera mechanism. I had no idea what the movie was about, but I knew it was about the Antikythera mechanism or some misinterpretation of what it was or wasn't. And I also, you know, said to them, go and look at it in the National Archaeological Museum in Athens. It's right around the corner. Go, go and check it out <laughs> before or after you see the film. As I later found out, many of them did. And I was, that made me very happy. It's Okay, I, I love that you mentioned the new Indiana Jones because I don't know anything about it other than from what friends have said. I haven't seen it either. Uh, I did read reviews that were pretty scathing. I never judge films by their reviews. I would like to not judge films by their reviews. I usually do pretty well with not doing so. Um but unfortunately, a side effect of having my brother-in-law review films professionally is that I I get told the review anyway, even though I didn't want it. So that was always a bit fun. But um, yeah, so the, the only thing I've heard about it is from what friends have said. But they did come back and say, you know, I was quite shocked because it's it's a lot more classically themed than I thought it would be. And so I thought it was quite interesting. And um, so now I need to do research and I need to read up uh, before I attempt to see it. Uh, although although the funniest thing was I, I, I guess, didn't realize until quite recently that Harrison Ford was still resuming his role. And I just said, oh, an older gentleman who is still in the role, who refuses to retire from his job. Um, that's so accurate. Well, he does. Um, I, I, I read in, in the Greek newspapers um, that he does speak Greek. 
uh, when I asked uh, my students, you know, and this is why I, I, I sort of want to see it because he does speak ancient Greek because he has to communicate with Archimedes in Greek because Archimedes, of course, cannot speak English. Okay, well, that that's a great reason for me wanting to see it now as well, um, because I did not know this. And I want to see how Harrison Ford can try to pronounce some Greek. I I believe I read somewhere that you specialized, though, in, in Aegean prehistory. Am I, am I, are my sources correct? Well, it's both Aegean prehistory and classical archaeology. Um, you know, I like them both. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify myself as an Aegean prehistorian, uh, and I know many of my colleagues wouldn't. You know, it's really, it's really the whole gamut of Greek archaeology that's that's really interesting. And you know, Greeks abroad, Greeks during the colonial period, and uh, I do specialize in that in the sort of early Iron Age, that sort of really fundamentally formative period between. The collapse of the Mycenaean world on the one hand, and the beginnings of the archaic and classical world and the Greek Renaissance on the other, and 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 so yeah, that's I, I sort of straddle both of those both of those worlds. But I, I I am interested in early periods. I am interested in later periods. I'm going to ask you kind of a dumb question, but I think it would behoove any of my listeners who don't know anything about the fields. Uh, I was I did not go into archaeology. It just wasn't my jam. Also because I was just bad at science. So the kind of sciencey things you need for archaeology. I was not good at them. But why do you think more archaeologists who are into Greece don't go into sort of the early Bronze Age, Iron Age, like the early period. Many do, um, and many from the United States do. Um, there is a sort of um, weird demographic where um, many, uh, particularly native English-speaking students, go into the prehistoric fields because in order to be, uh, in order to do anything meaningful in terms of classical archaeology, you really do need the texts. And many of them want to be archaeologists without having to do the the, 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 the Greek and the Latin. And so there is that sort of um, – so the, the, the number of students that I come across that say, you know, that are really interested in the Mycenaeans or the Minoans or even earlier uh, the Greek Neolithic because it's text-free archaeology <laughs> – and you know that that kind of leads to all sorts of things. I mean, certainly the classical world is text aided, uh, but it is at the same time text hindered. Text texts are written by the winners, not the losers. You know, to have been born a slave girl on the wrong side of the tracks in classical Athens was not to experience Plato's world. That's true. That's very true. A history is written, written by the, the the victors and the, the aristocracy. So uh, there's there's a lot of voices we don't hear from uh, in, in antiquity. In fact, how many female authors do we have in the classical canon? Sappho and maybe... And? <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. How many people of color? <laughs> oh well, ooh, uh, yeah, definitely not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not not many there. Um, it's sad and regrettable, but it does make so much sense, especially for back then. I feel like I read some material in undergrad from some female 
not named Sappho, but actually maybe maybe that was more contemporary. Maybe I'm maybe, maybe I'm not remembering correctly. I mean, I guess it's it's just interesting because I feel like most people or most scholars that I hear of or interact with, uh, they 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 are classical archaeologists or they do the late periods or Hellenistic Egypt or, or something quite later. I, I do know there are an abundance of scholars who do the more prehistoric periods, but I guess I feel like it's super sectioned off because I hear either you do the early stuff and you do either like the Cycladic, the early Cycladic civilization, or you do Mycenaeans into Bronze Age collapse because everyone is very intrigued by Bronze Age collapse. But then I feel like I don't hear of anything sort of in between those two and then the jump right to, oh, yes, and I study the 5th century, and and then I do the 4th century. Well, people, I think I think one of the sad things about our field, sad and good, perhaps, um, is, is the level of specialization. You know, being a master of it all is really, really difficult. You have, there's an enormous bibliography. You know, there are 17, 18 is it 19 now foreign schools in Greece? And many of them have, you know, a great tradition of scholarship in their own languages. So in addition to Greek and Latin, and also having modern Greek, I mean, I know with the previous project that I worked on, my collaborator, Mantos Bessios, did not speak English. So, you know, to communicate with him, you had to know modern Greek. So you have to master all these modern languages and then do Greek and Latin on top and be good enough in them in order to get a job. So it's kind of only, you know, sort of weirdos that happen to have high IQs to sort of get into this field. Well, that's very diplomatically put. I'm Although you bring up a good point, I, I don't know, maybe maybe it was my impression, but coming up through my university system not too long ago, I graduated undergrad in 2018, I still felt that while there's obviously the great emphasis on learning Greek and Latin, probably German and French, so you can read the main scholarship, there's still, for some reason, not a huge emphasis on ensuring that scholars who would like to go do excavations and other work learn modern Greek, even though it is a place where you can go and you should probably learn to communicate with the locals. Why do you think this is? I'm not sure, but the, the people, um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate at UCLA because I have colleagues working in Central and South America. I have... Um, colleagues working in China. I mean, we have two colleagues at UCLA, Lota von Falkenhausen and Li Min, that work in China. And both of them speak modern Chinese, and both of them have a really solid background in classical Chinese. And in fact, one of the, the, the great things that I've really enjoyed about discussing with my colleagues working in the Andes is how many of them actually know Quechua or Amaranth, all these, you know, native South American languages. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. I'm really oftentimes fascinated. Um, you know, to give you a really small example, one of the one of the greatest words in Greek is "I write." Grafo. Okay, but it's the same word to paint to incise, to depict, 
to write. The ancient Greeks had no conceptual difference between writing and painting. And the same thing is true in classical China, and it's also true in Quechua. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of frightening. And if you don't know these languages and these words, how are you going to get to the people behind them? You bring up some very valid points. And and it is interesting, though, because it's not just classics as a field that kind of struggles with this, you know, oh, if I'm going to study classical Greece or Rome, but I don't know Italian or modern Greek, so can't go communicate with the locals. But I feel like it's the same thing with our colleagues over in Egyptology. There's there's no push to know modern Egyptian Arabic or even standard Arabic. There's just let's they kind of have the assumption, right, that they pick up the four or five languages, whatever it is they need. And then you can go and study in Egypt and, and just speak English all the time. Again, the best archaeologists I know of Egypt know Arabic. I would hope so. I mean, I think it's good and we should make a greater push to learn the languages that are spoken in the places where we want to go study. Um, it's just it's I feel like it's just been a very interesting trend to see how many people talk about wanting to go to these places or how they do study, but they don't make an effort to learn the, the languages there. It was it was interesting. I mean, we didn't even have a modern Greek program at my university in undergrad, so they could I could take a class in ancient Greek, but when I said, what about modern Greek, I would like to take that because I would like to learn how to go speak when I go travel there. And they said, oh, well, we're so sorry. We don't have that. You'll have to find a, a class elsewhere. And I said, elsewhere? This is a university. You're supposed to teach me things. Well, there are remarkably few universities in North America that offer modern Greek. But those that do have very solid programs. That's true. I mean, is that just an accessibility issue? Do, do we need to be? But also, like... Would those be their own thing? Would they be within a classics department? Would modern Greek, like a track for modern Greek, be under a different language department? I think people just don't know what to do with it. I, I think I think there are various models in various places. Um, certainly at UCLA, modern Greek is in the classics because that's where it was housed uh, originally, uh, and 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 it makes it, it makes sense for all sorts of reasons. But you know, it it it's 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 oftentimes um, a standalone program. It's not connected with the classics, or it's in a modern languages uh, tract. So it varies from place to place. That might be worth looking into. I might do some more research just to see what all universities m may have departments and where they're housed and, and see if um, there's a pattern. It just It's something of interest to me um, because I hope more universities will in the future add, add a, a track or program uh, in, in, in modern Greek as well because um, Italian is offered as part of departments of romance language. So that just kind of has its own house, really. I want to turn a little bit, though, to your excavations and work in the Athenian Agora. Also, because I'm curious to see, so are you at all aware about the, like, extreme degrees of work put into the Assassin's Creed game set in ancient Greece and the full recreation of the ancient Agora? Uh, I know a little bit about it. I know a little bit about it because uh, of the work of um, my predecessor, Professor John Kent, and, and also Bruce Hartzler, 
uh, who's worked for many years at the Agora, who created the IDIG program. There was a wonderful tour, and I think it was it was all organized through Bruce, where John Camp actually went around using the software and and talking about individual buildings. Um, and their restorations in the Athenian Agora on the basis of those um, digital models um, in Assassin's Creed. So uh, it was actually the the person who introduced them to me was actually one of my undergraduates at UCLA who was a science geek. And um, it was actually in a course that I was doing on Minoan Crete. And there was this, um, she said, oh, there's this wonderful passage where some ancient Athenian in the classical period goes back to the ruin of the palace of of Minos at Knossos and she you know I said oh you, you've got to show that to the class so she did and uh, it was a lot of fun so yes I know a little bit about it I can't say that I'm an expert no I was just curious to see because if, you, if you've done you know any work there you kind of know it's remarkable because there's so much there it's remarkable because it would be really hard to recreate it with any sort of accuracy but i'm curious to know whether you have seen like the recreations of like the stoa poikile yes i have and um you know i i'm a great fan of um of 3d visualizations uh they really do assist us and um in fact in one of the articles that i co-authored with a colleague samantha martin which was published in the Journal of the Society of Architectural Historians. Um, it was a, a, a basically a viewshed of what you saw from the Stoa Poikili looking back towards the Athenian Agora. And it's frightening what sort of information. It's, it's you know, they built the Stoa Poikili in one of the lowest, swampiest parts of downtown Athens in order to build it where it was built. They had to rechannelize the Eridus River. You know, one corner certainly, and perhaps both of uh, the two front corners of the building are not just in the floodplain of the River Eridanos, they're in the river. And so the Athenians had to canalize those rivers. So why didn't they build it 20 meters to the north? They couldn't really build it 20 meters to the south because the Royal Stoa was there. And there were other important uh, contemporary and uh, earlier buildings there. And so, but why, why did they build it there? Well, it's the only place where you get three, where you get views of three things on the Athenian Acropolis that nobody knows about. And that's when the Persians torched Athens in 480, straight, you know, just before the Battle of Salamis. They destroyed the archaic temple of Athena Polias, Athena of the city. They destroyed the pre-Parthenon, which was an unfinished building. It was actually longer than the present day, the 5th century BC Parthenon, but not, but not as wide. They built on either side of the Erechtheon, to the west of the Erechtheon, they built into the north wall of the Acropolis the what they could salvage of the metapes and triglyphs of the temple, the archaic temple of Athena of the city, and to the east of the Erechtheon, they built into the north wall the unfinished column drums of the pre-Parthenon. So you can see both of those things, and at the same time, you can see the little temple of Athena Niki, 
of Athena of victory. And the cold statue, the bronze and uh, the God, the bronze, the gold and ivory statue of Athena inside the Parthenon. What did she hold in the palm of her hand? The goddess Nike. It was victory. It was as, you know, my colleague and friend Jeff Herwitt once said um, in his wonderful book on the Athenian Acropolis, this was a vast and intricate dissertation on victory. I mean, the Athenians defeated the Persians virtually single-handedly and on their own turf, once at Marathon at 4 in 490 and once at Salamis in 480. And the Athenians celebrated that. You know, one of the things where we talk about this viewing angle from the Stoa Poikili back towards the Acropolis, we're really talking about why on earth did Mesocles, the architect of the Propylaea, why did he change the orientation of that building? And nobody could quite figure it out. The archaic propylon to the Acropolis faced this way, and Mesocles changed it around, I forget exactly how many, what, 30 degrees or something, to face somewhere else. And, and in order to do that, the Athenians had to build this enormous, humongous ramp to the Acropolis. The reason why nobody quite figured it out was because most of us, all of us, look at the Propylaea as a monumental entrance. But what we forget, and this is what when the penny dropped when I was visiting, like this was back in 2010, it was a long time ago, we published the article in 2012, the penny dropped. A monumental entrance is also a monumental exit. Upon exiting the proper layer, Salamis is in your face. Nesicles captured for all eternity the site of the Battle of Salamis. And what really made the hairs on my arms stand on edge was I ran home that afternoon when the penny dropped. And like any good archaeologist, before I had a beer, I went onto Google Earth and I bisected the portal of Mesocles' Propylaea and took it down towards Salamis. That's really where the whole thing just fell into place. To the west was the Kinosura Peninsula. At the end of the Battle of Salamis, it was at the tip of the Kinosura Peninsula that the Athenians built their victory trophy after the Battle of Salamis. And to the east, the little islet of Psitalia, which is today the sewage treatment plant of Athens. But it was where, in antiquity, the Persians stationed 400 soldiers. Nesicles just bisected that line. I mean, we're talking about kilometers from the Acropolis. He didn't have a theophilite. He didn't have a total station. How on earth did he do you it? You raised so many good questions. I I I want to dig in so much more to these, all of these great questions. This just, again, goes back to the fact that we had so many brilliant people back in the ancient world, and I wish that I could sit down with them and ask them so many questions. Why did you do this? What was the purpose of this? Is there something that I'm missing? Every now and then we can actually figure it, figure it out. 
or we can come up with an interpretation that's elegant until someone comes along and shows us that, you know, this, that and that is actually wrong. <laughs> but, Going a little back to the Stoopoikile, because I love it. It's something that shows up in, in the game and it's a, it's a little known well, I'm, I might have talked about it a, a lot. This is a building that a lot of people are just not familiar with. They don't know what, what it is, why it's significant, and they don't understand why scholars get so excited when we see it in the game and we say, that's the Stoopoikile, look at it, it's recreated perfectly. Just for the audience's sake, could you tell us, you know, why is this a building that scholars get so excited about? First of all, many of the earlier stoas that we have, particularly something like the Royal Stoa, um, you know, it's also the place where the laws of Solon and Draco were housed. It's where Orlithos, the stone, was where the, where the archons actually took the oath of office. In 399, it was actually at the Royal Stoa that Socrates had to present himself to the Archon Basileus for the Archon to determine if there was enough evidence for Socrates to go on trial. So many of these other stoics in the Athenian Agora have a function within the workings of the democracy. The Stoic was the original mall. And, you know, my predecessor and, and friend, John Camp, my predecessor at the Athenian Agora, who actually, incidentally, spent 57 years working at the Agora in various, you know, first as a student and then as director, you know, says it nicely. There were all sorts of characters that were attracted to the Stoopoikili. It was where there were sword swallowers and fire eaters and all sorts of characters. I mean... The, the philosopher Zeno from Kition on Cyprus so liked giving his lectures there that his school of philosophy came to be known as the Stoics. And so this was also the brainchild uh, of Cimon. Um, It was built straight after the Battle of Salamis in 480. Um, so it's very exciting there. But what really makes exciting are the paintings. And although we have sometimes descriptions of these paintings, we don't have the paintings themselves. And that's what really makes these th this store great. I mean, we know Polygnotus, some of his work hung there. Peninus had a very famous painting of the Battle of Marathon in the store of Poikili. Mycon and all of the celebrated artists, the ones whom the Romans thought so highly of. The story that I always love to tell students about that gives us an insight, as it were, into the importance of these paintings is actually in the Elder Pliny in his Natural History, where he talks about two painters, Apelles from Athens and Parasius on Rhodes, and Apelles goes to Rhodes to meet Parasius. And he goes to Parasius's home, and Parasius is not there, but there's a great big easel that's set up ready to paint. There's nothing on it. And so Apelles takes a brush and paints a line. Now, what is that line? I, I have no idea. Pliny just says he painted a line. Was it straight? Was it diagonal? Was it wavy? What was that line all about? What color was it? We have no idea. Parasius comes home that afternoon sees and contemplates this one, takes another brush, paints on top of it. And Apelles comes back to visit Parasius the next day, but Parasius makes himself scarce. 
And when when Parasius came home the first day, he said, this, this can only be Apelles, can't be anybody else. And Apelles comes back, sees the line that Parasius has painted over his line, takes a third brush, paints over the line, and then makes himself scarce. Parasius comes home, sees that third line, says, I can't do any better. And he runs down to the harbour to find his guest. The painting was lost in one of the conflagrations of, on the Palatine Hill in Rome. Pliny had seen this painting. I would love to see that painting. I think we all would. I think we all would. I mean... Just these three lines, one on top of the other, as it were. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's kind of relatable, honestly. I mean, this is like ancient drama, ancient stuff that... It's like the ancient stuff that you wouldn't really talk about or really portray in some like great film, but it's still fascinating. Um, and, and, and for us to be able to, to sit here and say, oh, we, we know this happened. It's, it's extraordinary. So... You know, so we have this marvelous recreation in something like a massive video game. Now, obviously, everything is not perfect. Um, you, you can't possibly get everything right uh, and, and have things done on time and within budget. So, unfortunately, they do have some major issues. The, the Parthenon does not have the correct... The freeze is on the inside of the building in the game, and then the famous Parthenon marbles look to be made of bronze in the game which is just very inaccurate the shields that were there the fourth century when alexander was there are somehow put on the building during the fifth century it's there's there's a lot of issues with it but we have them in in some way in a big triple a game now i'm a bit curious you know okay so they're not completely accurate but they would be a good resource to educate people anyway. And then we can dig into the, this is wrong and this is not right. And this is what we would have had. But I'm, I'm a bit curious, you know, for, for other reception methods and like film and TV, you know, it's, I feel like it would almost be harder to create something like an accurate Agora, an accurate ancient Athens. Is gaming kind of the future? Is it some, some sort of ped pedagogical tool that really will be helpful to us? Or is there a way where we might be able to get something different? Well, it's not just gaming. It, 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 Lexi, it's really about bringing these ancient buildings back to life. That's the important. And people have been doing that for a long time. I mean, Sir Arthur Evans built in concrete the palace of, you know, Minos and Knossos. People have continued to discuss it for generations to come. Whatever those discussions, whether it's real or not real, whether this, this aspect is true or false, that sort of fades into the background. What is important is that Knossos became, at, for, the, for its time, the second most visited site in Greece after the Athenian Acropolis. The second most visited site, incidentally, today in Greece is the Athenian Agora. Um, but Knossos, for its day, became the second most visited site because people could actually experience an ancient building. What makes the Athenian Agora so great is the 1950s restoration of the Stoa of Atlas that really brings what a Stoa is to life. 
and shows what it could have been. And people interact with this architecture. They interact with this building. That's what's important. It's not the gaming that's important. You can do what you can play whatever games you like wherever you like. Um, but it's bringing these buildings back to life. That's that's really important. And whether you do that digitally or in reinforced concrete, the end is the same thing. And that's what's significant. So would it be fair to say that it is, it is more important to have something that you can interact with, even if it's inaccurate? So It's important to try that. Um, I was involved uh, a long time ago, back in the 90s, with... Um, at the Getty Museum, bringing to life a digital model uh, of the Forum of Trajan. And one of the great things about that project was it actually was a wonderful tool. Um, it was a wonderful scholarly tool because it showed it was on the basis of one man's reconstruction. I won't get into details. But it actually showed that this person's reconstruction had so many errors in it, because once you're forced to build a building, whether digitally or in the flesh, in three dimensions, you actually see what the architect had to go through, and you understand what that's all about. And it really shows how little, on the one hand, we know about these buildings, but at the same time, it really aids what we do know. Um, and you can try out so many different things. So it's a wonderful scholarly tool. Um, and it's also a wonderful way of bringing these things to life in our classrooms. So, yes, I'm a great fan of digital reconstructions. And if it's in the gaming field, all well and good. If that forces students to go and interact with these buildings, that's great. They're doing a better job than I am as a classics professor. I'm curious that why do we not have I mean, we are I guess we're, we're lucky that we have it in this country. Why do we not have more trips down to the full recreation of the Parthenon in Nashville? But, you know, by the same token, um, if you look at the front facade of the Supreme Court of the United States, the number of columns. Okay, they're Corinthian, they're not Doric, but the number of columns is no accident. It's based on the Parthenon, even though they're Corinthian and not Doric. Um, and so much of classical architecture has featured so prominently the democracy of, 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 of the United States. Um, and, you know, the ugly underbelly of the Athenian democracy is the same ugly underbelly of the founding fathers of the United States. Women, slaves, and resident aliens did not have a say in this government. That was true for Athens. It was true for the early American Republic. But we've, we've really fetishized these buildings. So in many ways, the mall in Washington, D.C. is something. <laughs> um, and, and, and this is why... You know, there's been such a pushback in certain quarters against classical architecture because it is connected with the old right and, you know, with what they want and and, and all of their ideals and, and thoughts. Um, 
And that's an unfortunate fact of life. I, it's true. I mean, unfortunately, you look during you look at architecture in Germany during World War Two, and all you see is like classically inspired buildings, um, which is devastating to see. But there it is. It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the buildings in D.C. and, and American democracy. But we have a, a large amount of classical Greek symbolism. But it is quite interesting to me how when you ask sort of people in government or political science, um, they always default to, no, 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 we're not based on Greece. We're based on Rome. And now I know that Rome got a lot of its ideas from Greece. But it is still interesting to me that I feel like we have so many things that are descended like straight from Greece, but we don't really take ownership of it. We have to go through the Rome filter. And I've always wondered, why? Why do we have to go through the Rome filter? Well, come come to Athens and I'll take you around the Athenian Agora. And I'll show you what it's all really about. Please do. I've only gone around the Agora twice. Now, I quickly want to ask you, though, do you have any favorite like media adaptations of ancient Greece that you think have been done quite well? Or, I mean, I guess conversely, you can just say, hey, there's this one that is done quite terribly and people should stop watching this. No, not really. Um, I'm, I'm just a great fan of visual reconstructions. I'd like to leave it there. I, I, I don't know if I really have, because I studied Knossos, I can, I can, I can show all the, the things that Evans got wrong. That's in the realm of a quibble, not a debate. <laughs> um, that's that's really the niceties of, you know, nerdy archaeologists playing games. It's it's the fact that he did it that's really exciting and interesting. It's the desire that people have to do that that's important. You know, I don't have a favorite, or I don't. It, it, it's it, or I don't have a a particularly disgusting version that I particularly don't care for. You know. <laughs> okay, well, that sounds good. I mean, yes, that's true. I I used to, as a young undergrad, not love what Evans did. But as I've gotten older, I've realized, well, he, he had the guts to do something that we can go and, and see. And, um, it you know, yes, it's open to a lot of criticism for not being accurate, but it's there. It's there so we can analyze and and look at well, it. Well, you know, the anthropologist, um, you know, Angelo Mosso, uh, in the 1920s talked about talked about this that and basically said, I think very correctly, had Evans done nothing, there would be nothing to see. And it's now it's the type side of Minoan archaeology. Oh, I agree. I've, I mean, I've been to the site. I love the site. It's lovely. Um, I'm due another visit at some point, so I haven't seen it in many years now. But yes, it is it is a very great site to go visit. So I highly recommend if you're going to Greece, you should um, go to Knossos. Now, I usually end the interview portion of the podcast with a couple of last questions. The first of which is when you were a student, either undergrad or grad school, did you attend office hours? Uh, professor's office hours? You mean? Yeah, all the time. Wonderful. Okay, so having attended them, do you have a particular memory of something fun that was either said or done uh, at, at when you were with a professor? No, it was probably with the professor of Greek, <laughs> um, Professor Ritchie, who wrote his dissertation at Cambridge on the authenticity of the Rhesus of Euripides. And 
the man looked like a little wombat. I don't know if you know what the Australian marsupial a wombat looks like, but look it up, Google it. And he looks just like a wombat. He looked, he's dead now, but he looked just like a wombat. The numbers of students going into ancient Greek were so few that he had an interview one-on-one with all the incoming students. And, you know, this was day one. The University of Sydney is a first-year undergrad. I, you know, taken classical, decided to sit on in classical Greek. Professor Ritchie took me into his office, and he was a very, how can I put it, awkward human being. He wasn't good at one-on-one conversation. And there was stunned silence. After what seemed an eternity of silence, I said, Professor Ritchie, what's it like studying Greek? (laughs) You know, something really inane, you know. I just, you know, I felt like I had to break the ice somehow. And he said in a very shy and modest way, um, something along the lines of, well, you know, it's my experience if you do the work, you pass. And then there was stunned silence. And then, you know, the 20 minutes, a half an hour was up without any other conversation. So I said, well, thank you for spending so much time with me. I really enjoyed this conversation. I got out of there. But I didn't give up Greek, (laughs) which I should have. Wow. To be a fly on the wall, just to see this interaction would have been would have been fantastic. Okay, so taking from your experience then as an educator yourself, if you had to give students like a 30-second minute max elevator pitch for why they should attend office hours, what would you say? I'm not sure if I would. <laughs> you know, it's 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 um they should attend the lectures, they should attend the sections, they should attend office hours if and when they have questions. The, the the whole point of office hours is for students to clarify things that are unclear in their minds. Um, but it's really the lectures and the sections and the discussion sections in class that are really important. Not so much, you know, the, the, the office hours I found, I found and I find as, a, as, as an educator the number of students, you know, I, I annually at UCLA teach a class, an intro to Greek archaeology, and it's usually set at 300 students. Year in, year out, there's one student that comes to office hours every week religiously, and there are a handful, maybe two or three, that come more than once, and that's it. You know, and even in lectures, I mean, perhaps I shouldn't say this to students, but, you know, your most important commodity in life is time. If you don't want to attend these lectures and if you don't get anything out of it, then why lose your time? Why waste your time? Maybe that's not what you wanted to hear, but uh, that's what's what, that's that's you know, in many ways, what it's all about. No, I mean, I, I I appreciate the back and forth because, you know, there isn't a right answer. Um, and, and it is true. I mean, 
you know, it's a it's a big debate. You know, how much is our time worth? Uh, you know, this goes beyond just time in school. It goes to, to work as well, doesn't it? I mean, it goes to, you know, if you're you know, at a job you hate, why do you stay? If you're at a job that you love, but something's wrong, why do you st- stay? Or, you know, why did you leave? Um, it, it, it's, it's a debate that it's, that, that go that extends a lot um, further than education. And over the 20 uh, and, you know, plus years that I've been at UCLA, you know, two of the, two of the finest undergraduates that I had, and they were very far apart in time. One was maybe 20 years older than the other. But they were both very similar. They were both very passionate about the classics. They both came regularly to office hours. We often went over time, and that was fun. Um, They were really passionate and excited about the classics, uh, about archaeology, And both of them left UCLA to go to a smaller institution where they could spend more time with their professors because UCLA was so large. There were so many undergraduates. You know, being in a class of three, I taught that course, Classics 51A, an intro to Greek archaeology, uh, once with as many as 420 students. And, you know, and that's fun, but it's like a Rolling Stones concert. It's not, you know, an intimate discussion of things. And I was very saddened to see both of them wanting to transfer out of UCLA to go to smaller places to get the sort of experience, the the sort of educational experience that they were really after. And good for them for doing that and for realizing that that was the case. I admire that. I, you know, I landed in a in a big program. Well, technically, the department was very small. I went to the University of Missouri in Columbia and our classics department is was pretty small. But yeah, I, I took our, our intro to sort of classical mythology course. And yeah, there were like 400 students in that class. And um, luckily, as I got uh, further along in my education the class sizes became quite small and intimate but yeah um it, it's not it's not easy at a, at a big university so i uh, you know good, good for them for doing that at the end of each podcast i ask each guest if they would read or recite Shelley's Ozymandias poem and then after doing so if they if if you would just give us your brief opinion on you know why do you think people connect with this poem why do people seem to find it uh, either inspirational or interesting or uh, I've even heard someone say it gives it's foreboding so um, yeah I'd be interested to know what you think oh well that's foreboding and terror written is um, the way both Sigmund Freud and Le Cabousier describe the Parthenon, <laughs> but that's another story. I very much like Shelley and I like this poem, so I'm, I'm sort of probably doing, I should probably Google it, but I haven't, um, but I'll try to do it from memory. If I falter, please correct me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I met a traveler from an antique plant who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown the wrinkle and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that it sculpted well those passions red, which yet survives stamped on these lifeless things. Stamped on these lifeless things. What a great line. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. On and on the pedestal, these words appear, colon. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look at my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I can recite Byron too, if you like, you know, to something in the dearth of fame, though linked among a fettered race to feel at least a patriot shame. Earth, render back from out thy breast a remnant of thy Spartan dead. Of the 300, grant but three to make a new Thermopylae. Place me on Sunium's marbled steep where nothing save the waves and I can hear our mutual murmurs weep. There, swan-like, let me sing and die. A land of slaves shall never be mine. Dash down yon cup of Samian wine. Oh no, okay. I'm so impressed though that you can do that from memory. I, I, I need to get on that level. Wait, I need to be able to do this, but... um. That was very impressive. And I'm so happy we got a, we got a bon- bonus recitation. So, yeah, what the poem does for me, well, you know, at, at, on, on the simplest level, it is a metaphor for the ephemeral nature of human power. <laughs> and that's what makes it great. Um, but, you know, he's saying something a little more. And it's, 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 it's basically 
what the great Italian historian Benedetto Croce once said, that all history is contemporary history. We study the past to understand ourselves. That's what I think he really meant. And that's what I think Shelley was really at and, and, and about. So that's probably a really good place to end with Shelley and Benedetto Croce. I love how you hit the nail right on the head because I, I do. That is like the first thing that I say, which is, yes, it is a it is a statement on the ephemeral nature of political power, all power, humans. It's wonderful. So since we're on this same wavelength, the very last question I ask every guest is if you consider today's contemporary society, do we have a modern Ozymandias, something that we think is going to last forever and amazing? But realistically, will humans in, you know, 500 years think the same or will will it be, you know, revealed that it's terrible? I think we have many. And I think it's it's both the written word and also art broadly defined material culture. You started the whole conversation with your interest in reception, but, you know, one of the really interesting things is canon creation, but also canon destruction. What makes it into the canon and what doesn't? And what's that all about? At the end of the day, it goes back to something that I mentioned about the Slave to be a slave girl born on the wrong sides of the tracks in classical Athens is not to experience Plato's world. There are many things, and they're always on a personal level that mean a great deal to us. So whether it lasts for the fullness of time, whether it's a Thucydidean tema SIA or something else, it doesn't really matter. What's important is what it may mean or not mean to an individual. For that, there are many things. It doesn't need to be the written word or even art. It could be anything. It could be the way the wind whistles through leaves or the waves of the sea or anything that catches our eye. There's metaphors in everything. Yes, one can certainly find beautiful metaphors in everything. So I think that is a beautiful answer because there are there's not one right answer, obviously. So I did kind of lie. There is one more question I would like to ask you, and that is where can people find you or your work if they would like to, you know, email you about coming to study at UCLA or taking a class or finding articles or volumes? The best thing to do is to email me directly. So you can do that at a number of sites. Um, you can either do it at my UCLA email address, which is really easy to look up, or my email at the American School of Classical Studies in Athens, um, where I'm director of the Athenian Agora. So just look me up and go from there. Wonderful. Well, we will make sure then that we have linked your email and other other various info in our show notes so if people would like to reach out to you 
they can. I would like to thank you one more time for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Of course. And I, I hope that you will perhaps join us at a later date. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.